0: Sound Ideas Podcast. Again, my name is Adam Hugaveen, and today we have uh, my co-host Frank Wolf. Hello, hello, and a special guest uh, adventurer Stephen Ziff. Now, I'll let Frank do the honors of maybe doing a quick bio because we just met today.
1: Yeah, sure. Like, uh, so, so Stephen Ziff. Actually, you contacted me about uh, somebody else a couple weeks ago, but I've I've known you over the years as being kind of an underground, you know as far as under the wire but very competent adventurer in both skiing uh kayaking you're also an educator uh bringing up you know the uh the leaders of tomorrow so to speak um so you're kind of a you know a family man so all sorts of different you know interesting tangents very kind of embedded in kind of the not only kind of, you're kind of straddling the world of, of east vancouver where we are here mm-hmm. at the, the dream cycle studio uh as well as you know the amazing you know uh, BC coast, you kind of explored all sorts of sides of it. So, welcome, Steve. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. And uh, were you uh, were you surprised that I turned it around on you to to have you as a guest?
2: Uh, yeah, a little <laughs> surprised, a little nervous, yeah. and uh, I just didn't know what. Uh, I mean, I listen to a lot of podcasts all the time when I'm biking or just at home cooking or whatever. So, I'm always interested in people's stories and. Like I told you, I signed my students to do a podcast and interviewing somebody in their family. You mm-hmm. had some storyline. so when you asked me, I was like, "Well, I guess I should maybe step up to the plate," as you said. And uh, that's right. Yeah. So I was curious as to why you wanted to talk to me, but um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I think I think uh, I think everyone has a story, and I and just no, having known you over the years, I know your story. Is, I, I find it quite interesting, and I think, uh, like you said, everyone has a story. Even like even like you're getting your students to do these these podcasts and they're interviewing probably people in their families and mm-hmm. probably elders people who have mm-hmm. stories from the past and and it's like you never know what anyone's about until you scratch beneath the surface it's true, and that's what we do here. Okay, So <laughs> scratch away <laughs> exactly. So how, for so for you, I think your your backstory. I actually knew your wife before I, I knew
2: you. No, I met you first. Oh, really, you sure? You gave a slideshow at our, oh. my school. Remember your first? Uh, I swear it would have been Barb first. No, so it, it was this? Well, how- it may have been, but I I might I at least my story, oh, okay. is that, and was that you called me about a w- slideshow you wanted to get about your cross-Canada canoe trip. Ah, so I hustled it. So you wow, hustled it's it. it's much more uh, aggressive back then. And I then. was being hustled by somebody else who wanted to charge, like, I think $2,000 for yeah. glass... In case slides, that
1: uh, was probably like case of beer. Here we go. Yeah, yeah. and you
2: were like, I don't know, hundred bucks. That sounds. I don't know what it was. was I was like, sure, come on over. And you gave a yeah. great slideshow. And yeah. then that's what. That's what I think I first met you. Mm-hmm. So that's my memory anyway. Mm-hmm. And then you probably met Barb at MEC.
1: That's right, because you actually at the time, you know, as far as your outdoor background, you were actually at the school you work at. You were doing the outdoor, you know, education program, so mm-hmm. trying Part to get it, sp- yeah. speakers in to, uh, mm-hmm. I guess, inspire the kids to yeah. get out there and, and find their own kind of kind of path yeah. um, and as far as you I know they're, you're um, you're kind of sponsored a little bit or you're like an ambassador for no not sponsored no. an ambassador but, but you do you do get gear from a local company
2: well it's nice uh, having yeah. friends who are gear reps exactly that's always a good thing yeah. and then it's also uh, I have through friends that I know and Adam knows Cam Shoot is one of them mm-hmm. um, and other people in the industry Gord who used to work at M E C and uh, friends at Patagonia just you know oh here's a guy who does some stuff and I like to play with gear and try stuff out. So I kind of got you know, put into that kind of gear testing. Yeah, setting. and doing
0: stuff is an understatement. It sounds like you do quite a lot. You do high mileage. Uh, you mentioned that you cycle all the time everywhere yeah. you kayak and then of course your dedicated skier at the very least and you're doing the high mileage and i think that of all the folks that are that are worthwhile are the, the gear testers that are doing the mileage and then having dealt with some testers also be able to synthesize the feedback and as an educator um and a teacher your communication skills are probably excellent um, not all outdoors folks that uh, have great communication skills and i think. You know, synthesizing and feeding back real world uh, information is good. Now, secondarily, of course, you can always return the fatigued product if it's broken, uh, which is equally a value. But um, no, I think that, uh, that shows that you, you do the miles.
2: Yeah, I hope I add value to, their, you know, to the process. Um, I think I do because they keep asking me to come back. So, um, and I really enjoy it. It's really fun just to get some new piece of gear and figure it out. I've had a chance to design a few things as well. Or give feedback on on new designs, and it's been nice to see your ideas kind of come up a couple of years later on the product lines. So what kind
1: of uh, what kind of for example, like specifically? What, I, what? I
2: focused a lot one year on a new ski pack, um, and uh, just what I wanted in a pack, and and um, they l- luckily made it for me one year. Which Is that G three? No, MEC MEC. Okay, yeah, yeah, And they made it for me one year when they were the cooperative, not the company. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, And it was what was great. the name of that pack? Uh, it was just uh, it was a hack on one of the packs they made, but just it was no name to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it never ever got produced except for the one I had. Right? And, uh, but I, th- I think they right had now. the zip pack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, but I think that they incorporated some of the stuff into other designs, and I've mm-hmm. seen the ideas pop up in other packs. So not because of my idea, just because I think people think the same way, and they wanted a pocket here or a zipper there. And you know, I think if you do something enough, you come up with similar ideas. Mm-hmm. It's not uh, not original, but just you know you do it enough.
1: And I remember talking to you even just impressed by some of your just, you know, you you've got a family life, you got a professional career, but you also squeeze in as much as you can in a weekend sometimes. So yeah. you, you used to have some like remote, you know, way back country spaces you could get to on a weekend like i think at back of garibaldi lake there was like a little cabin you'd hit all the time by yourself you had this little zone you wouldn't see anywhere else we don't give it away here now <laughs> but uh, you you kind of seek out these kind of really remote kind of pockets of this you know and if people haven't been to the coast mountains before it's uh it's uh you know incredibly you know you know technical terrain it can be very you know convoluted you see people even the North, North Shore Mountains are getting disappearing all the time. Right? It's very complex terrain mm-hmm. and you kind of have to know what you're doing back there but it, it seems like it's a place where you're really comfortable and you've done it enough over the years to kind of be able to so what some people think would be an epic kind of mission. You almost do it in a, in a, in a casual way, um, not casually in terms of being a laissez-faire but kind of doing impressive kind of weekend hits that most people wouldn't even necessarily kind of contemplate. So
2: yeah, kind of like surgical strikes. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of folks who do that because again, they're working, they have family Mm and kind of just why now with the weather apps and the better stuff online, you can really dial in what day you want to get out there and hit the right conditions. Yeah. Um, If I had a week, weekdays off, it'd be even better. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I only work with the weekends and my vacation time, but um, yeah, I, I was lucky enough to grow up in Montreal and from the age of two, my parents got me on skis um, they were ski bums who had moved to, uh, to birthed Pass, Colorado in 1961 after they got oh, married. Mm. And my godfather, interestingly enough, was the, uh, former coach of Nancy Green, Dave Jacobs, mm. who started Spider Skiwear. So he was my wow. dad's ski buddy. So you got and they went roots. Out, so got ski yeah. roots and oh. they went to Colorado, lived in a dirt floor shack near Breckenridge and were ski patrol and ski, you know, ski teachers. And then they are mm. ski instructors. And then they moved back because of a death in the family. But we kept skiing all the time. We had a chalet Mont in Quebec. We leave school at noon on Fridays and drive and do the bomber. ski Saturday, Sunday. And that was our life, right? Yeah. So in the wintertime. So I always felt really comfortable in snow. And then moving out here, um, I spent a half year in Colorado visiting friends in between high school and college and, uh, and tried telemark skiing that one time. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I can't do this. It, my knees just, I was terrified ripping my knees apart. So. I got into alpine touring stuff like in the late 80s. Oh, well, early. Because yeah. I knew I could ski. Mm-hmm. and I knew if I wanted to telemark, I'd have to learn a new way of skiing, which meant going to resorts, which I couldn't afford at the time, and nor did they really, like interest me. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I got into ice climbing and going to the Rockies a lot in Colorado. So I it just seemed to be I seemed to be happy in wintertime. Yeah. It must be because of where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just feel at ease on ice and snow, bootpacking, skiing. So... When I started skiing out here, it all seemed to kind of come together. And luckily my school paid for me to take a level one avalanche course in the nineties. So that was nice to get that kind of scientific, you know, background in terms of how to make decisions. And then, and it just kind of all came together. Luckily I fell into a nice group of friends and, Different mentors and people we'd go out with, and we'd learn together because you know back then there was not much
0: information. Mm-hmm. You're all kind of learning. And there together wasn't in much gear, so a nerdy ski question: what What binding systems were you using in the late '80s and early '90s? I was a ski technician at MEC, okay. and obviously worked for G3 as right. well. So I'm, and I saw the equipment. That really, in, even in the '2000s, things were just coming into their own. Um, what was happening in the late 80s and early 90s? Yeah,
2: well, my first binding was the uh, Raymer Universal, which I just <laughs> sent to Cam for his little ski binding museum. His museum. And uh, <laughs> the Raymer is actually, interestingly enough, the prototype, not the prototype, but the um, innovation for the Dynafit. Because the if you look at the binding, it what was-, was the a the Raymer frame binding? It was a frame binding yeah. with a, a socket in the front that mm-hmm. pivoted. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the early Dynafit, if you go to wildsnow.com, Lou Dawson does a lot of stuff on the old bindings, but the initial Dynafit boot had these kind of wings. It was reversed what it is now. The pins were on the boots, and the holes were on the binding. Because mm-hmm. that's what it was in the Reimer, and then they said, this isn't going to work, so they reversed that. And the heel piece was this turning heel piece that locked the plate in, but they just got rid of the plate and used the boot, which was ingenious. But that's what they, they, you know, the thought behind that was from the Raimer binding. Oh, was
1: that a releasable? binding well, Ramer? They, <laughs> like not din yeah, yeah like it had it had a it you said know, din on it but it didn't it mean said anything. din on
2: it but i don't know what <laughs> and then so quickly got out of that right and went uh with the
0: uh silretta's the from, 404 yeah. the pink and those were and good. Really and good they were really yeah. good they made those for a long time and they really long time, sought yeah. after would do their yep. compatibility with mountaineering boots exactly for ice climbers it was really you know uh, do you know tom tom james I've heard the name. Yeah, the reason I mentioned him—he's a good friend of mine. He works as a boot fitter, and uh, he's he actually that intuition. Oh he, yeah, I know, he, I know. He, he adopted the ski museum, sorry, yeah. the binding museum that was MEC. So okay, he uh, took the Brian Preston museum, museum and it's shop now. And, really? Yeah, okay. yeah, and he got Hulk Hogan like those pieces. Yeah, he would, <laughs> and he got the the binding museum. Um, so you, have you been into intuition to see yeah, Tom he, at all? Tom, I didn't know Tom's last name. He's fit in my boots for like the last 15 years. Okay, great. Know, so, well, yeah. Yeah. He's got that, the, the binding. I'm pretty sure there must be a ramer up on the wall, a lot of old telly stuff, etc. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. There I is I for sure. Yeah. So,
2: yeah. so right. And then it was the dimere and then I got into dynafits in the late nineties. But interestingly enough, I was on Baffin Island in 90, 1990, I think it was doing research for prof out of the States that I hooked up with. And, um, he was on Dynafit bindings, the old uh, pink and purple ones that Those he got sold because he got his ski stolen. He was at Edmonton, mm. and the MEC store sold him this new type of binding. And on that trip, we met two Italian guys coming out of Ayatook National Park, and they, had, they, had, they were on telemark gear. And it was the first Scarpa plastic telemark boot. Oh. He didn't show it to me, but he had over over boot gaiters on it. And he was talking about he different show gear. He wouldn't show it to me. <laughs> he said, you'll see in six months. Because he said, I'm wearing a plastic telemark boot. I was like, you're what? Mm. And uh, yeah, and then he, he couldn't tell me anything about it. But then sure enough, six months later it came out. And so um, so I'd seen the Dynafit then. I didn't really trust it. But then as I started skiing more, it just became obviously the binding of choice. And then any kind of tech mining has the same kind of you know there's so many now in the market.
1: And what were you doing on like specifically? You said you were on Baff, and what were you doing there? What was the research?
2: He was looking to see um, when that valley was last glaciated.
1: That's the Akshuk Pass, or, or uh, yeah, well yeah. Summit Pass, right? Yeah.
2: took National, yeah. So he he was looking at all, yeah, Akshuk
1: is the gap. Is in, the gap? Yeah, so that's, so, that's that whole valley there, right. basically. Yeah.
2: So he was looking at. Uh, he went there in the summer before. And he wanted to go back into wintertime. winter time. We were there in February. It was mm, cold. Yeah, I bet. And he wanted to drill through. What was ended up being nine feet of water ice with a manual auger. It took forever to do it. Is that on an ice floe at Summit no, Lake? just on itself? the lake itself. Okay, yeah. And then yeah. he we would build some ice screw contraption to take varve analysis, like to pound down some PVC pipe, and pound it with a weighted, you know, block. To push it down with the- to, to get to, the tube of use ice. use like a six at, to one Z, yeah. you know, Z pulley system to pull it out. Oh, wow. To get those layers of sediment mm-hmm. so you could date the age of the lakes. Oh, wow. So that was about six weeks of work.
1: And did you squeeze in some skiing while you're out there? A little like bit. Doing we brought some skis, of those like valleys yeah. coming in and stuff like that. I wish you could have or... squeezed in more. It wasn't yeah. much time, and yeah.
2: uh, the snow quality there was pretty, uh, pretty
1: yeah. nasty. It's kind of like bulletproof, and then it kind yeah. of get you get that, that spin drift in the in the yeah. in the cool wires and the valleys yeah. and stuff. like that. I think that. now that's the that's
2: newer skis are probably be a lot of fun, but back mm-hmm. then it was like two ten Fisher Europas, whatever they were, and yeah. it wasn't very fun. Yeah, yeah. So
1: no, that's that's gorgeous country. Mm-hmm. I did a trip over the uh, from uh, kick to pang. Uh, okay. a yeah. few years ago, just over the Penny Ice Cap. We mm-hmm. came down through the Turner Glacier, ended up at Summit Lake, and went out that way. You
2: crossed the Penny Ice Cap?
1: Yeah. Oh, wow. Going up the Coronation Glacier. Yep. So it went around the nose, and then okay. all the way up to the summit, and then dropped down through, down to the Turner Glacier backside of, um, of Asgard. Asgard. Right. So you popped out of the Summit Pass
2: Hut, then? Exactly. Yeah. So I have a funny story about that. Yeah. <laughs> the, when I was there, we had arrived in the in the in the summit hut, and Tom, the guy I was working for, had permission from National Park Service to use the hut. Mm-hmm. And apparently, there is a list of who has priority in the hut it's like first ranger and that's not that.
1: the shelter cabin that's the actual hut itself. it's a shelter cabin there's that little
2: you can fit two people in that one the little one well the one we were in you could, you could, there's like two beds and you could sit eight but you can only sleep four okay and we yeah. were party four as we pulled up there in snow machines we had two inuits yeah uh, traveling with us joavi and mo and they we pulled up and uh and they were our guides and these four guys all in the same color Euros. <laughs> Euro suits with the sleds and, you know, and only one guy spoke English. She was Israeli Italian mm. and there were three Italians and they were just moving into the hut and we we're like, sorry, we have priority here. We had brought no shelter and, uh, they were pretty bummed and we negotiated. They would be able to cook with us cause that was fine, but they'd sleep in their tent. So they were really happy with that. And they pulled out of their food bags like, um, raw bacon Hmm. I just started sucking back the raw bacon strips, like at least 10 each, right? (laughs) And then they... They had a bowl of, it was my first kind of foodie experience because I was like 20 or 21. And I brought like craft like those green Parmesan cheese things, you know? Yeah. And and good uh, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and the Italians are just scoffing. They, well, they didn't say anything, but then what they pull the out this that? like still quarter round of Parmesan, right? <laughs> and he has a small grater and he's this one guy is just working the grater making the Parmesan huge mounds of Parmesan yeah. into this lentil soup, whatever it was, I don't know. And I just looked at him and said, Why are you wasting your time and energy? Why don't you just use this? And the Israeli guy looked at me and said, Hang on a second. And he translated to the three Italians and all at once, it would, oh, and they all started speaking Italian and <laughs> Parmesan and Reggiano. And I was just very humbled by that. But it was my first kind of food experience. They were just appalled. And the Israeli guy was cracking up laughing because of, um, of my ignorance and nativity of like thinking that was good cheese, right? <laughs> and, and,
1: and are you now a foodie out there? Oh yeah, like yeah. if you're out there on a weekend in a remote like Ziff's on your in your tent, are you, are you getting the the round of parmesan with you?
2: Well, see, so you you uh, you must be confusing me with somebody else. I don't really <laughs> sleep out that often in the wintertime. Well, I in, in do, your uh, little secret hut up there. Day, day trips, there. yeah, that? secret hut. Right. Uh, and there's no secret hut, people. Frank's making that up. But um, <laughs> no, I, I think uh, Barb is, is her family is huge into food, and and she definitely taught me how to eat properly. And our kayaking trips when we first started kayaking. In the early 90s, together, we'd go on these 25 day, 30 day trips down the coast with all fresh food. And it was basically a cook off. We were two couples and we'd take nights cooking, not cooking. It's a competition. It's a competition. So we <laughs> had really good meals and you spend, you know, two hours cooking this beautiful meal over the fire with appetizers, roasted garlic, you know, main dish, dessert and some drinks, and then you had the whole night off the next night, so you'd sit back, and the one couple did all the dishes, all the cooking one night, the next night was off. Float and bloat, right? It was float and bloat, but we were doing big trips, right there from like Rupert to Bella Bella, or mm-hmm. Bella Bella, yeah, to Port yeah. Hardy. and they were really fun, but we didn't do uh, you know, big days, but it was great food. But yeah. then Barb and I, when we went back by ourselves on one trip, we brought the same kind of cuisine, and we were exhausted mm-hmm. <laughs> we were doing big days every and no, night. Every night, there was no rest for the cooking, right? So it was, uh, yeah, it was a good lesson to learn of having to take some quick meals because you can't cook that every night.
1: That's right. So you've got the in terms of the coast, you have not only the obviously the years in the up in the mountains in the wintertime. In the summertime, you've done you and Barb have done tons of uh, you know explorations up and down the whole coast with your kayaks. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah it's been our kind of we. You know, I, I came from a. I went to a summer camp in upstate New York for 13 years. where I was from the age of seven to the, whenever it closed in 1987. And, uh, and I started hiking. What was the camp's name? It's called Camp Idawall. It's now closed down. It's gone. It's gone. It was on, uh, on the lake. Shout out to
1: all you Idawall people.
2: Yeah, there's no, quite a few of them. <laughs> there was 25 at my our wedding. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go visit some in New York and over the holidays. But yeah, um, great. Yeah, I still climb with one of the guys who taught me to climb. When I was 18, and we called it climbing, but it was mostly just scrambling. But we were, towards the end there, he would take us up. Like, New York has these great um, landslides. Hmm. So you get to, so all the peaks are these old glaciated peaks, and they're just, you know, you know, basic granite rock covered in soil and trees. And when the big storms come in, wintertime, they often have the new landslides. And this one guy, Steve who we'd call Ram, would, scout out these new rock slides and you'd find ways to make what was just climbing these 46 peaks over 4,000 feet and you're a 46 or if you do all 46 into this kind of, you know, well, those are kind of boring trails. Let's go bushwhack up this creek bed and, uh, first to find sense. this rock yeah. <laughs> slide and just see what's happening up there. And it was, yeah. you know, like high angle class four scrambling, often low class five, as I found out later and on. And loose probably back. too, right? Some of it yeah. was loose. Some of yeah. it was freshly clean, beautiful white granite. Mm. It was super adventurous. So I got into climbing through that camp and took a Knowles course up in the Cascades when I was like 17. So I hmm. was like, I was a climber. I was reading every climbing book I could possibly get my hands on. I wanted to climb all the time. And then I moved to the coast and, and Barb was here. Uh, we came kind Have of You guys
1: like, met at that camp, am I right? No, we met at McGill. McGill, okay. We met at McGill, no,
2: yeah, no. in 1990. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, but we came out here together that's a whole other story my yeah. kids yeah <laughs> have learned recently which is kind of cute but anyway uh we came out here and uh know, i was into climbing and climbing 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 and uh and barb liked it but it wasn't like you know it wasn't her thing yeah and so we just picked up a new sport together and we thought let's go learn kayaking together so we mm-hmm. took a course the eco marine remember eco marine on Island? yeah they just closed so a couple of just, years yeah, ago i guess yeah you work near there now don't you that's right yeah. i do on the ground island yeah. so we took a course with them for three days and uh, then that summer we did a trip out to the Broken Group, and then next summer was Klicka Sound. And the summer after that was uh, was a trip around to a twenty five day trip. Wow. Oh, and yeah. just started tripping on you know doing long. So I I climbed for a month in the summer and kayak with Bar for a month, and mm. pretty much when school ended I had my whole summer planned planned out within a couple of days. You know, so uh, and that became our go to kind of uh, routine until we had kids. Yeah, and, and
1: how about, as far as climbing? What what's uh, what's like a memorable objective you've kind
2: of done in bc like your most memorable climbing experience in bc most memorable um i didn't you know friendly enough i didn't climb a lot in bc i climbed mostly in the cascades oh, okay yeah yeah because i knew the cascades from my Knowles course and i the had fred becky book right fred becky books those yeah. three volumes which i just devoured mm-hmm, all the time right yeah. and um and we would and my friends from colorado who i went to i'd gone to camp with and one guy told me how to climb he would be coming up here every summer for a month and so it was hard to, you know, it was hard to find partners when you're off all summer. Um, people are working, only have weekends free, and you kind of want to go for a two-week trip. It wasn't always easy to, for me to find partners. And the coast, the BC coast was so unknown to me. Mm-hmm. And the guidebooks were so, like, the Fairly guidebook was so, <laughs> like, and it's usually it's not a Becky guidebook. Yeah, it's not no. a Becky guidebook. <laughs> and because all the access is usually through logging roads, which changed every couple of years, sometimes these routes, which look great, were inaccessible. Mm-hmm. As I found out trying to do Slessy one year when the road got deactivated. Um, so just it was, I, I couldn't figure it out. I had no mentor up here to help me figure it out. and But the Cascades were just across the border. In many cases, a closer drive. And it was well-known stuff and lots of exploratory stuff. And we focused a lot on the picket range. Okay. And um, so my most memorable climbing trips are probably down there with, with this guy, Ramras, who's you know older than I am, but he was always there. And we do some great like five, six-day traverses, just the two of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think my most memorable climb with him was probably on, uh, yeah, I'd say the North Ridge of Forbidden. We climbed it like eight or nine times and we just went up there not knowing what we'd find and had this amazing bivvy and, uh. Just you had a dialed. small, tiny ledge <laughs> and just had such a nice, fun time. And I'd known the kid guy since I was seven years old. Right. And now I'm in my mid-20s, late-30s and just having a hell of a time with him mm-hmm. and doing great five-day trips. So we did, I think every summer I did a really memorable trip. The most memorable, I don't know if I could classify one, but that was definitely one of them.
1: Anything ever like, I guess, memorable and maybe the bad way, like a death-defying way? Did anything ever go horribly wrong in your trips where you're like, that was close? Yeah. Or you're always pretty yeah. like... You're so dialed in, you never get into trouble.
2: <laughs> no, I definitely can get into trouble. There's two two stories, I guess I'd say, of almost uh, biting it. It would be uh, with um, I, I tried Slacy three times before I climbed it. The Northeast Buttress is famous. One of kind the of fifty five-nine. classic climbs. Yeah, there. I think it is yeah. actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's this gross, disgusting pocket glacier which you have to kind of cross either underneath it or around the top of it. Mm-hmm. And we had crossed in between the chunks and made it to the bypass ledge, they call it, and got way up to the bivy ledge and woke up and it started to pour rain. So we had to repel off this big peak, excuse me. And um,
1: Classic coastal experience. Yeah, yeah, and then it was
2: raining on the pocket glacier and just you know, on slabs. And we we uh, were going to start crossing underneath it one at a time then a big chunk of like mm. a VW bus came hurling down just crossed right hit. where we were about to go yeah and then we looked up and said well and then we just ran as fast <laughs> as we could and but you know it was a difference of a couple of minutes maybe mm. yeah and yeah. then soon after that i was in the cascades with my friend Ramras, and we were on this couar on mount terror in the pickets aptly the, named yeah, yeah. aptly mean the, the, the pickets are just kind of very small range of like 7,000 foot peaks that are really remote and hard to get to. Mm-hmm. And they're just kind of that like classic, you know, tough bushwhacks and beautiful campsites and not great rock, but kind of adventurous, climb, adventurous yeah. mm-hmm. which is kind of what I focused on. I wasn't too into like doing the classic five, you know, you're looking for something new and fresh and different. Yeah. You know, I'm not that great a climber. Up. So yeah. five, seven, great five, you know, 10, 11 is not my, <laughs> mm-hmm, <yeah. laughs> I wasn't doing it enough to, to get good at it. Uh, so, uh, he I was below him about 10 feet, just entered the snow uh, finger in this couloir, had my ice axe planted, it was kind of sideways, and I hear him yell rock, and I look up and I see this bowling ball-sized rock coming at me, and I kept my, I don't know why, but I kept my ice axe in the snow, and I did a scissor kick, and, (laughs) and the rock went through my legs. Wow. Like uh, judo move. And then he's, and all he said was like, whoa. <laughs> and I had no time to process, just like, yeah, whatever, and just kept going down because we just were kind of trying to get back. It was a long day and just wanted to get back to camp. But later on, I was like, yeah, that could have been a really weird. Yeah. This is before in-reaches and spots and cell phones. We had no, we were a good two and a half days from anywhere. Oh, yeah. And, Rock like
1: that's going to, you know, kill you m- half the time, right? So yeah, or yeah. knock
2: you down, or make you fall, or break your leg, or mm-hmm. whatever—many like ways mm-hmm. to die, right? So, so you went all
1: matrix on that rock. Yeah, and I guess got so. Up it was there. kind of yeah. just
2: pure luck, right, that it didn't bounce any other way. But those are my two, I think, closest calls or most memorable calls, I guess. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, that's the randomness of the mountains, too, right? When you mm-hmm.
1: put yourself in those situations. you can you can control what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You can't control what's around you or
2: what's above you necessarily, right? So no, yeah, you can you can make sure you aren't in the wrong place at the wrong time, mm-hmm. maybe. Mm-hmm. or not be beyond below any tracks or, you know, loose rocks on a rainy day. Stuff yeah, like that.
1: But, um, yeah, yeah. No, those yeah. are those are close for sure.
2: Well, as you know, like with the ocean, it's the same thing, right? You can yeah. position yourself. but You, you can listen get, to the forecast
1: yeah. and you can say oh, it sounds all right, but mm-hmm. often you're in a deep little cove there and it looks calm in front of you and where you're going is a completely different world, right? So It is. Um, it like is. you've been around Cape Caution. It can be you know, mm-hmm. an amazing place like that. You're exposed, you're committed. The only way to go is get to the other side, right? And, and it yeah. can blow up on you, so.
2: Yeah, Cape Caution, yeah. Barb. <laughs> if Barb is here, she wouldn't make me tell this story, so I'll tell it, but uh, okay. it was my only time can you ever- Can describe
1: reason- just what Cape Caution is, though, yeah, as far sure. as B- just geographically in the B.C. coast yeah, so and why it's so, you know, kind of unique, I guess. Yeah, you know?
2: so Cape Caution is, uh, was named by Vancouver, I think, at least the name Cape Caution. I'm sure it's like First Nation Vancouver. names yeah. for it, but yeah. I don't know what they are, unfortunately. Um, I should, but uh, yeah, Captain Vancouver named it Cape Caution. I think is that correct? I'm pretty sure that's correct. I
1: should know this, but I'm going to go with that. It doesn't sound like an, an indigenous name.
2: No, it's so. definitely not an indigenous <laughs> name. But he, uh, yeah. so it's it's uh, just slightly north of Vancouver Island, but on the mainland, and it's the kind of it's where you it's Queen Charlotte Sound, right? It's just mm-hmm. north of that, yeah. and it's before you if you're on the Inside Passage route, which you paddled two mm-hmm. summers ago. Yeah. If you're going from the Broughton Archipelago. This is your kind of the long stretch of exposed coastline. You kind of got to go around this kind of, headland that sticks out before we get into I think it's Smith Sound or Rivers Inlet or yeah so it's kind uh, of
1: between yeah. that kind of gap between Haida Gwaii right and the north end of Vancouver Island yeah. it's kind of like right there exposed and there's nowhere to get in for like 20k no. right so, nowhere to go yeah
2: mm-hmm. and there's a the the fastest rapids I think are just south of there Nakuacto Rapids they're mm-hmm. running 16 knots on the ebb or something yeah yeah they're pretty I've seen those going they're pretty yeah it's pretty just all rock wall the whole yeah. way mm-hmm. or booming beaches yeah. and, and that's like where, and there's this yeah. beach there Burnett Bay mm-hmm. which is a beautiful like long beach basically Gorgeous sandy beach, and we were um, so we were north of that in the Rivers Inlet at a red beach with that sunken boat that's on the beach we oh, okay. camped there. Yep, and we were there waiting two days for fog. This is like in the early nineties. So we're going south. We're going south. Yeah, yeah. from Bella Bella, and um, I had never used a GPS before. Always kind of gone just by you know sight and sound. Let's go by feel. Go by feel, <laughs> and uh, like Willie, uh, our mutual friend, yes. he always said you know Fossible just future guest. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> He always said just listen, you know, if you can hear the coastline, you're good. If you can't hear, you're too far out. So that's how you kind of gauge Mm. because you want to kind of stay away from the coastline and not get caught in those rebound waves and all the stuff. Yeah, Yeah. competent. So Mm -hmm. I had programmed this GPS route staying about a kilometer and a mile, nautical mile off the shore the whole way around into Burnett Bay. And as we were going right around Cape Caution, we started hearing the waves get closer closer and closer and louder and louder and Barb is like what is going on we're just in this beautiful calm area and now it's rough and it's like two foot chop and it's kind of all over the place and messy and uh, and all of a sudden through the fog we see the fish those fishing triangles and Mark demarcate the fishing mm-hmm. boundaries yep it was Cape Caution right there, right, we're like right 10 feet away from it. <laughs> and then this, this boat from coming from the Skull Cove, just be oh, a whale-watching no. yeah. area, uh, Skull Cove boat came out of the fog and just passed between us and Cape Caution. Like inches away. <laughs> like inches away. And then we paddled away, away from the coast, and things calmed down again. And it turns out that one GPS point I put for Cape Caution was a mile inland. <laughs> so we were just beelining it for the shore. Uh, my fifteen trust GPS the technology, points, yeah, I know. Ignore your ears, just exactly. trust the technology. I was yeah. like, it's, it says it's going here, you know. So that's <laughs> the last time I use a GPS too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I use it one, once after that, but to, in a very non-committal way, and you know, right. learning that it's there's other ways to do it.
1: Yeah, exactly. You can't so. you can't trust it for sure. Yeah, Cape Cosh, I mean, I remember similar with the boat. Oftentimes, like boat traffic can be dangerous. But uh, last year, going around Vancouver Island, um, we got a very rough day going from Tofino to Ucluelet, like jacking up. Big swell, big wind, kind of dying gale, um, but we had to get, we stay way offshore mm-hmm. and it was kind of foggy. And same thing, like a, f- a fishing boat mocking at us, had no idea we were there. And you're in like heaving like 20 foot seas and that you, you see them, you mm-hmm. don't see them. You see them, you don't see them. They probably went from here probably to maybe 20 feet off of ours and they, they didn't know they went right by us didn't know we were there we are going where's it going we could see it but it could never see us and we we it just missed us but that would have just smoked all oh three of God. us instantly so these kind of like human hazards out there are sometimes more dangerous in those conditions because yeah. they can't see either right? no they can't you know there, there was like the waves are just going right over the top of them. They mm-hmm. couldn't see anything. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of like generally. And they're watching the right their direction. GPS probably yeah. too, right? They're, they're just like not booming right straight ahead. Exactly. Yeah, exactly.
2: So. Yeah. It's funny. Cause we were with my kids. We now paddle with quite a, we had a lot of trips with the kids up in the mid coast. And since they were three and seven been noon trips every summer with them. And, uh, we were in the Broughton's two years ago, and there was no boat traffic because it was just, you know, the first summer of COVID. That's
1: right. That was a great and summer to no, paddle. I know. It was amazing.
2: <laughs> there was no, That crossing from Telegraph Cove is always a really busy channel to get across, mm-hmm. and there were no fishing boats, no yachts, no ferries, very few kind of, um, you know, uh, tugboats. It was really quiet, so mm-hmm. it was quite lovely.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: It was a good time to go there.
1: And you, uh, as, as Adam is finding in his life now, is that… Uh, you you kind of have adventured through career and kids and everything. And you know, how do you find that balance point, especially when the kids are young? And uh, I think you probably had a decision to make when you were younger. Probably are we going to have kids or not? Probably. You know? Yeah. And then once you have them, you gotta kind of have to work them into your lifestyle, right? So
2: yeah, we never yeah. we always wanted to have kids. That was never a uh, yeah. you know that was always going to happen eventually. Mm-hmm. Once we figured it out ourselves, you know, yeah, By yeah. our early 30s, we were kind of evolved enough to to venture into the kid thing, yeah. but um. So I guess I would say I quit ice climbing in the late 90s. Barb wasn't too into it. (laughs) And it was also really tough to ice climb from Vancouver. It's not the most... You
1: had to drive 10 hours to Banff. Yeah. Well, you can
2: drive up to Lillooet and Gold River and stuff. It's still like a five, six-hour drive, and conditions are variable. And I used to drive to Canmore every spring break for two weeks and climb there or go to ura in silverton in the uh, in january for colorado but um it just became like a long a long haul and just mm-hmm. very a lot of time away yeah and it became kind of you know very few partners and we had one good winter up here in 96 which is a ton of stuff was came in and skiing was bad but so i have a ice climb in, in a long time but um when we had kids and i was really into ski touring I, it's when I fell in love with the North Shore and kind of figured out that I could go ski in the morning and be back by by 11 and have mm-hmm. done like, you know, quite a few thousand feet of skiing. And if you know where to go and if conditions are good, it can be amazing. Yeah. And so I started um, just doing that. And I'd often go before work. I'd leave, you know, home around 4 a.m. Before they closed down the Seymour Road. You could drive up anytime you wanted to. That's right. They
1: lock it down until like they 7, down until 7, seven a.m. Yeah.
2: So Cyprus was always locked down until seven a.m. So I didn't go there too often. But I used to go to Seymour like before work at four mm-hmm. or five a.m. Put the headlamp on, and I'd love to go and it was really stormy and just be by myself up in the you know yeah and get to the only Rock man on the yeah, yeah, it was really awesome. And you start <laughs> seeing the groomers out, and you start seeing some lights coming up, and and often if it was if it was a nice day. You get amazing sunrises and beautiful views of the of the city lights and mm-hmm. it was a really lovely place to be so i really fell in love with that kind of um quick access to to skiing and uh it was less money for gas yeah. um and then i don't ski seymour too often anymore but i'd go to cyprus a lot in hollyburn and behind the st mark's unnecessary and the lions and the whole house down crest trail mm-hmm. and got a couple of friends who are kind of met by just seeing them in the woods up there you know the only just people out there, hey, people, you're there you know, again <laughs> like 20 years ago like now it's pretty busy up there in hollyburn mm. but 20 years ago it was pretty quiet up there and you could you could lop hollyburn all day long see uri out there? i'd see your eye yeah. out there yeah <laughs> and he's you know he's a guy who the uri is a guy who we both know from mbc and and he you know your eyes well Lee? of course yeah, yeah, he he he's, a yeah. he's a legend that guy is speedy yeah
0: still i mean i consider him a friend i i worked with uri for a long time he's you know one of probably the more accomplished athletes yeah. in canada in his own right and you see him even though no one knows about him <laughs> and you see him bike and i you know i live uh off mcgill near the second Arrow yeah. bridge and i see him every few months i'll see him on the road with, with winter, the skis, with skis yeah. and, on his bike and, yeah. yeah yeah and it's it's phenomenal it's, just, it's good to explore all these people like yourself steven who are incredibly accomplished and are doing it for themselves and i'm getting pretty inspired to get back out there the last couple of years have been challenging but i've gone up Seymour a ton and i do fairly modest objectives for me the objective usually is just to get out mm-hmm. and i'm pretty conservative and i'm not quite as well versed as, as a lot of my friends or the larger community but um it's key it's a key part of you know, keeping me sane keeping me who I, you know, who i am and mm-hmm. and it really i just love seeing these these people like your eye that are so passionate um, and they get the miles and the kilometers and they're all, you know your i you know they people have offered to sponsor him in races and mm-hmm. uh, you know ski ski touring ski mountaineering races skimo races. And uh, I like it even more when people like that just say, no, when, you know, I'm not, not here to race. I don't have any benefit for. just goes to the MEC the gear
1: swap and gets everything for five bucks.
2: No, <laughs> no. commitments. And gets <laughs> up Baker in two and a half hours from the parking lot, right? That's
1: right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Or just going Rainier, and in, in order to avoid the permit, he would time it so he would be passing the, the, the camp one or two halfway up. Halfway up. At the time, they would think he was just leaving the camp, mm, and yeah. he would just zip up and down Rainier yeah. in a day kind of thing. Yeah. Just gonna kind of do
2: the the, he'd efficient also do the spearhead self. in a day from the valley, right? Valley to valley. That's like right. Yeah. Very yeah. few yeah. hours. And he, yeah. I, mean, I
1: say, you're right. You know, you're so strong. As like, I'm just an old man. I'm not yeah. very fast. He's like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> whatever. He's just looked the same for like very 20 fit years. Old man. Yeah. yeah, and talking about kids as well. Like yeah. I remember when his daughters were young, mm-hmm. he'd be like dragging them up, Seymour, behind him on a rope kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? So. Getting them into the back country if even he had kids and not a lot of money or means and he'd they'd get up there somehow and he'd be dragging them into the back country yeah. up and down and, and that sort of thing which is and how you yeah. grew up in the chuck republic right so, yeah exactly know, just, just, just climbing around
2: that's yeah. the thing about the north shore it is really there is like you said before it is brutal mm-hmm. like it is a super very dangerous terrain very yeah. complex And yeah. i'm really glad i started ski touring there after i had already ski toured a lot the Duffy and the Selkirks and the Rogers Pass and behind Whistler. Because if I had gone there when I was younger, I don't know what would have happened. <laughs> it, mm-hmm. yeah. it, is, it is really like, whoa, that's really... And it just changes. The micro-terrain is mm-hmm. so... You get, and you get drawn into these drawn areas into that look these, yeah.
1: great at the top. Yeah. Cliff, cliff, cliff. And then yeah. suddenly you're, you're clipped yeah. out in a gully somewhere. I, I spent right? so,
2: so yeah. many days just going around and saying i want to ski that but i don't know how to get back out of there mm-hmm. so i had to go to find places and ski crappy stuff to figure out how to get out of where i wanted to ski and then yeah. i go back with other people because i didn't want to ski alone or whatever and just map out the kind of north shore because there's so many little pockets that you can get into yeah i'm still finding new areas especially around behind uh Behind Cyprus and and, and there's just so much terrain back there.
1: Yeah, and, all, and there's still people that they've never found that have gone back there. Especially, I think probably during, I think during COVID, and uh, yeah. we we interviewed Grant Baldwin who did, right. did the search yeah. and rescue North Shore, mm-hmm. and uh, it kind of shows people, you know, you have this population of a couple of million, you know, at the base of these mountains, and during COVID, suddenly, what can people do? They can go in the backcountry. You know, there's more people out there than ever, and they're busier than ever. Yeah, because right? people are getting into areas and they they think, oh the city's right there it's safe but then they they disappear yeah it's um, it's a sketchy and
2: yeah. plus also the snow is so variable it can go from hard literally ice <laughs> yeah it's local <laughs> to beautiful powder yes. <laughs> to powder on top of the ice and it's just everything in between yeah so when i go out with with friends to explore we're often bringing ice axes ropes ascent crampons, plates crampons yeah. you know it's almost like a mini mountaineering expedition mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. it is so variable. You never know what you're going to find. So you want to bring tools to make sure you can get through that, whatever you do find.
1: Yeah, like even like on, on Seymour, like
0: first pump, every, it can be uh, bulletproof. Oh yeah. and every uh, So yeah, me and that was yeah. a good friend of mine. Every Wednesday night last winter, uh, we would just do a really mellow night hike up Seymour. And he was learning how to backcountry ski. So I was just teaching him how to use his equipment throwing them the way trying to get them some tips for skinning and stuff but some nights were bulletproof and you see a lot of people with incredible gear now too Mm -hmm. so and i also you know would make the mistake of seeing this team of people with each of them have let's say five thousand dollars worth of gears that they got they got the stuff the dina fit the great great snowsuits and then you see them and they can't really skin um and then i mean not to trash their skills but it gets bulletproof so quickly. I think there's only once or twice, there's two or three days that it was stormy and one night in particular that the snow was really good, but most of the time, um, the snow was awful and traveling was very difficult mm-hmm. and, you know, it would have been cramp on, you know, a, a night to have crampons it if we were doing anything adventurous or any thing, a little further out. Um, but yeah, just bulletproof ice, and then again the the tease of getting the good conditions probably draws a a lot well draws everyone in Mm -hmm. and they're not knowing and and it's pretty it's interesting to hear you know obviously you did it right you were calculated you had that buffer of experience and and bigger somewhat more forgiving terrain which is a bit of an oxymoron but um it's (laughs) It's wild, and again, like the 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 throngs that are out there now. And the good thing is, there is more knowledge than mm-hmm. the internet. There's better equipment. Mm-hmm. There's GPS, um, which is great, you know. And again, like GPSs work well when you're on that bulletproof ice. It's like it's okay. <laughs>
2: but the phone apps <laughs> the are amazing, up. right? Like you can really zero in on where yeah, you are you and keep track. Out where you yeah, that's yeah. the
0: thing. Is like you know, my navigation skills are, are pretty modest, and you know, we came into it. You know, I started backcountry skiing when I moved here in 2006 Mm -hmm. and we came into it when, you know, phones weren't a thing yet, smartphones, but GPS did exist. So mostly maps and then GPS, like you said, they're always a little bit of a pain unless Mm -hmm. you use that piece of equipment all the time. They weren't intuitive and you couldn't pick it up like you can a smartphone. Right. Um, But yeah, I mean, the lesson is, you know, get educated and go out with mentors Mm -hmm. and um, ideally find um you just go pay a guy and then go educated get educated by uh, the, the right people first um because you yeah, get with, with volume or with traffic comes all these nasty stories but i think that i come from a camp that's petrified of being that person and the only thing for me is i'm overly conservative so i don't think i do enough i don't think i push it far enough but luckily i have friends like rory and Frank and everyone else who just pulls me a little bit beyond my comfort zone and says, Hey, get in there in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, not, yeah. not in a way that's uh, that's part of me in peril, more just, they know, they know what I can do.
2: Um, well, I remember in my avalanche course, then what we, they were asking us, well, is it okay to go skiing? Right. They're asking the students that and we're all like, you know, day two, like, <laughs> you know, we've learned so much and we're terrified of making a bad decision. And they yeah, said, yep. you know, this is what you're taking this course for is to be able to know, when it's okay to go, right? But now and then, reading, there's a great book out. But I'd highly recommend anybody who wants to learn about anybody who has any kind of experience, to read this book by Bruce Kay. He used to be, I think, he was the head forecaster for Black mm-hmm. or maybe it was. So I think it was Black Home. And um, it, it's an amazing book on. Is Apple. it new? Yeah, Rich? it came out about four or five years ago, okay. maybe more, I forget, yeah. but you can buy it online. Look at Bruce Kay. I think it's called Autonomy Mastery, and it's based on that, Daniel coin up i'll pronounce his name incorrectly but daniel something who's this famous um behavioral scientist and uh, examining how people make decisions mm, yeah. so Bruce has taken all this amazing research and put it into the knowledge of heuristics and avalanche decision making right and it's, I read the book every fall just to kind of Bruce K. Bruce Kay K-A-Y, uh, your K-A-Y. Okay. recenter my kind of thinking on avalanches and, and it talks about confirmation bias like just because you skied that slope doesn't mean you made the right decision yeah just means you didn't get avalanched <laughs> yeah and so people have a ability to just use that confirmation bias to keep saying I'm making good decisions i making good decisions right mm-hmm. because most people don't get caught in avalanches yeah um
0: oh, i cut that corner every day it's, it's good to go
2: yeah it's good to go right like somebody else has skied it or there's already tracks there or hasn't snowed that much you can always make up all these excuses yeah, right. to, but half the time we're just kind of like, that's why it's so amazing to see people ski line like three people go and the fourth person sets off the avalanche mm-hmm. right yeah yeah what does it sometimes it's like a yeah. one little weak point one little in the slope weak point it right, triggers yeah. everything right so it's not a perfect sign so it's a lot of um it's 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 you know it's it's avalanches right? yeah and, and like not, you
1: said the north shore it's not even necessarily avalanches it's um trees yeah and like your was uh telling me a story of this guy he just calls him crazy tom you might even know the guy skier for years would always be out there at the, at the co-op all the time but he was with the guy about 10 years ago on a bulletproof day on first pump they both didn't have their uh, Uri calls them the auxiliary yeah, crampons yeah. those are amazing and uh and they're both just creeping up first one guy lost his edge, sailed in a tree, yep. broke his neck, died. Yep. And, um, yeah. And Tom, I think the next year, his wife was kicking up a cool war in the Duffy and she died. he like awful wow. two kind of years of, uh, but they're just like, there's oh, Joffrey, definitely something that
0: accident on Joffrey. That was her and
1: someone else, oh, two people got. That was, so, that was brutal. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that was, yeah, about 10 years ago or something like 12 years ago, maybe a while ago, but that's also somewhat cultural. Like they're like, your eye never carries a beacon. Mm-hmm. He's solo. He's out there in yep. a in a, a one piece spray on suit, and he's kind just going for there, it, yeah. old school style. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it's like uh, they're just willing to take the risk as well. In some ways, you know, they're not kind of uh, seated in the safety uh, kind of
2: uh, or, protocol, or, I guess, yeah. in
1: a way. Or maybe they know the train so that well or they the can, ski yeah.
2: only in certain conditions. Like I remember, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, but, you know, you know, John Clark, right? Yeah. So I remember him telling me that. Um, You know, he never, like, someone asked him once, what what does he do when it's cloudy and foggy on a glacier? He's like, I stay in my tent. Yeah. (laughs) He's like, I go out when I can see. Mm -hmm. And that's the way he avoids having to use a rope. Um on glaciers because yeah. he would, in the summertime, he himself hiking, the time he would well. know, yeah. he give himself, you know, so he knew what he was, he would choose his time, kind of like kayaking, right? Like mm-hmm. you, if you go out when it's blowing 35 knots, you're going to find yourself in some <laughs> trouble, yeah. right? Yeah. Um If you wait a bit and spend those three days in camp just playing Scrabble and eating good food, you'll probably that avoid that the situation. <laughs> well, in the, the, the depth of experience
0: that comes with getting the miles in and again, you know, with, with, Uri in particular, he's been to that same spot a hundred times. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't condone the behavior of not using the, the equipment. And he's been
1: out there so much too, I guess. Yeah, proof in the pudding the, too, yeah. The, you yeah.
0: you know what slides, you know where you're going, mm-hmm. you've got the fitness to get in and out. Um, the risk is still there. But, and you can't uh, dig yourself
1: out anyway, so why wear a beacon if you're solo? Well, like, yeah, I yeah. Mean,
0: yeah, there's one, you know, solo adventures come with their own mm-hmm. set of perks. Um,
2: but, but even solo like, hiking is the same thing. You you fall and bang your head or twist your yeah. foot in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Or, you're in, or you're, how about if you're
0: you driving in a car by yourself? Well, well, lost of ways to well. die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But one thing, actually, I was up off the Duffy years ago, and I remember our, we were a cayuse or near cayuse, just, you know, doing some pretty mellow sort of day trip. And, and there was two euros and they were they were yo-yoing with their backpacks at the bottom of the room mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh yeah that's the kind of thing that you know as a conservative uh well-trained person that's constantly teaching in my own way and selling equipment and teaching you know the best practices you just shake your your head at the same time you know how fast they can go you know the bags and no worries and no cares yeah and people uh, but-
2: people find their own ways to manage it I I've seen people do that, too, and, and some are super experienced backcountry travelers, and they just know that slope is okay. So they're going to, you know, because some slopes are. Some slopes aren't going to. Like, I always find my friend Matt and I. would Yeah, Matt yeah. Gunn. You know as well. Mm-hmm. Famous guidebook author. That's it. Um, Matt
1: Gunn, guidebook author. Yeah. Pick it up. You're Spearhead,
2: Spearhead Atlas.
1: And what's the uh, Facebook page, if you want information? South on? Coast Touring. South Coast Touring. Well There's followed. F- I have a
2: funny story about that, how that okay. site got started. Anyway, he, <laughs> so Matt and I would often go out on a high hazard day Right on the Duffy and just yeah. choose a route that was and we thought was safe and, and try to manage how we would ski and, and make and you know, put down parameters before he left the parking lot. We're not gonna ski anything over this steepness or mm-hmm. in this kind of overhead hazard and just find a way to move through that terrain. Yeah. And we found it to be really good training and just practice for how to you know, if you're trying to traverse, how to move through terrain, what to look for, and and where things tend to kick out, and it's really good. And when once you have the knowledge, to just keep you got your system, like you're not in pushing, but you're just kind of learning from it, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, and I th- I find that very useful. Yeah. Same with kayaking, like it's kind of like you do your surf practice at Tofino and Long Beach, and mm-hmm. kind of playing the waves in a safe spot, so you know that when you have to do it for real at Burnett Bay, <laughs> yeah, coming yeah. down a six foot breaking wave, you know. Like this summer I was out there paddling, you know, I was going in backwards and trying to time in and not get any wave and just stay in between the waves mm-hmm. and, and just kind of learn to read the water. Just so that when I'm in a loaded boat, a double with my kid or something, yeah, I'll have a better. You know, I try to avoid surf landings you know, with kind of the pitch kids. Yeah. At the end yeah. there, but you yeah. want to try to figure out how the boat moves, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how is snow reacting in this situation, given the conditions?
1: Yeah, it's not is like it a good. surprise when it's happening. You kind of, yeah, you can you can deal with a, a situation.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. so going out to the North Shore lot skiing was just that you know i go out there and kind of look around, and often I wouldn't even ski that much. I'd just go for a walk. Yeah, go for it's a It's like tour. a hike with skis on and just stay in very safe areas or just get some exercise for a couple hours mm-hmm. and then go yeah. home. Yeah. And it was a nice way when the kids were younger to come back home at 9, 10 a.m., and I've had a really fun morning, yeah. and now I'm ready to, to play dad.
1: Take know? the edge like, off, yeah. play dad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was really awesome,
2: right? It was a nice way to do that. Yeah, yeah. Even you when can- the kids started skiing at Whistler Blackcomb before they had the current passes, I would uh, skin up from creekside at like 4 or 5 a.m out of bounds and go play up by kyber pass in the out of bounds area and mm-hmm. powder and then i would deke in, take him skiing for a couple hours my, my dad would upload them yeah and then i would you know they'd spend a couple hours get tired and go back down then i go off to the musical bumps and ski it out there it was a nice way to kind of combine it right so i think like you were saying before about how to balance you know, oh. the balance right is just find that in those couple of hours and i think like with covid like we're in a bike shop now so which i've come to quite a bit here but um i got really into gravel riding right it's the same it's the same um and i've always been a bike commuter I used to be a bike courier in montreal uh i actually where i met kevin valley when you interviewed right. a few weeks ago so we, right. were, we were we were bike couriers was, together bike courier and also yeah. bike racer out there right, too. exactly yeah, yeah.
1: And uh, that was like wintertime
2: Montreal, which is pretty gruesome. Yeah, there was
1: not a lot of couriers out there. He'd say you're kind of in that kind Very few, of yeah. two feet of snow minus twenty, and you got to deliver your packages <laughs> yeah. and your skinny road bike.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was and there was no lights, no like it was making up as you went as mm-hmm. it all happened. So we uh, so like you know when COVID hit, I needed some exercise, and uh, ski touring was out, and uh, so I started taking my uh, my bike out for you know trail rise my my steel frame you know uh surly straggler mm-hmm. then i came in here got some more tires and bigger dream tire. cycle, dream, came cycle. dream cycle by the way everyone got some bigger Shout tires in the corner there mm-hmm. yeah there he is <laughs> and then uh, i luckily landed into a, a bigger beefier gravel bike to, uh, a salsa and um just is so fun to leave your home and go exploring and it's the same process. I would do climbing, kayaking, ski, look at maps, look at Google Earth. It's all Earth. new to you as well, it's right? It's all new to me. It's like, yeah. where can I go? You yeah. know, and, and where can the bike take me? And what should I bring? What should I take? And how much food do I need? And all the same questions. It's just using that same skill set in a different environment. I think once you have that skill set, like you yeah, like yeah. you can do, you apply mm-hmm. it to any new environment, it's the same thing. Yeah. It's not any different. If you're canoeing, kayaking, ski touring, it's all the same.
1: Yeah, it's a, I think it's the same attitude and, and comfort in the wilderness. Like I think most of my long distance, say, wilderness uh, canoeing partners have been mountaineers, yeah. uh, backcountry skiers right. from the coast. And they've probably never done a big epic canoe trip before, but mm-hmm. they have that comfort in the wilderness. They can easily learn the skills, mm-hmm. you know, as far as like, you know, whitewater ki- uh, canoeing or, you know, moving through the terrain there. Or just
0: camping, the basic camping skills. just camping and
1: whatever your mode of travel is, mm-hmm. instead of being on skis, you're in a canoe, mm-hmm. or uh, instead of climbing, you're in a kayak or whatever. Yep. And it's just, they have that mental comfort. If you're comfortable in a, on a ridge in, a, you know, BC doing a, a technical traverse, you're going to be fine in the Arctic tundra as well, right? right. It's kind of a, it's just, it's just adventure in a different yep. kind of form, but mm-hmm. the, the kind of the, the, timing and the, the camping and all yeah. that sort of stuff is very similar. There's yep. good crossover. So I think I yep. find in terms of mental space, people who come from like the BC coast mountain background, they can kind of do anything in, in the kayaking and canoeing world. So, yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah. And it's all, it's all the, um, it, it's just, it's, it amazes me how similar everything is. Like even we had these, this family we met, Canoe, and this wonderful couple from Prince George, we met in the broken group with our kids mm-hmm. on our second kayak trip with our kids. Yeah. And they like were like, when were, they were really were young, your kids. Yeah, yeah. When our kids were four and, and eight, and yeah. their kids were like six and, and nine. Mm hmm. We landed at Han Island after crossing from uh, Tokert Bay after a pretty rough crossing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they were like, "How are you guys doing?" We're like, "Fine." We started chatting. We kind of hit it off right away, and we've yeah. been doing trips with them for oh, great. since that time. So you met them on the bro- we met them in the, the bro- bro- they from Prince George, and awesome. they were in, they were in two canoes, mm-hmm. and we were in you know two kayaks, a triple and a. And a single. Are they still
1: canoeing out, doing the canoe sea canoeing, or are they sea kayaking? Now? Sea canoeing all the time, it. and That's it's it.
2: you know it's it's the vessel of, of the coast really. I mean kayaks yeah. are more up north and right? really
1: popular for especially like if you have a bigger group, Group families, lots of gear. Yeah. These are pretty popular to get, especially the broken group. I find you yeah. see them more of them out there than We had to learn
2: to pack yeah. much more quickly because mm. <laughs> they were ready pretty they fast. Just, like
1: drop three packs in, let's go. Let's go you guys yeah. are like trying to do the Tetris yeah. with all the little Do You mind fitting this bags. in there? <laughs> yeah. but you guys got room in there? Yeah. yeah.
2: But they, uh, a couple summers ago when our kids were all like doing their own thing and we'd already done a kayak trip with a different family and, um, they were like, come canoeing, you know? So they took us up north, and we're like, we don't know how to canoe. I haven't canoed since camp, right? I was, yeah. like, 13. You know, like, you guys know water. You'll be fine. Yeah. And we did some, like, you know, Class three rapids. W- uh, what river did you do? You we remember? did the, um, below a, a waterfall, we started to do a portage, okay. which you didn't know about until we got there. Um, what's that town? Tumbler Ridge. There's a waterfall okay. there. And yeah, I think yeah. it's the Murray into Murray River. Re- into the pine? Yeah, yeah into I, the- I
1: crossed over that in the on the line. Okay, trip. all right, yeah, okay. Yeah.
2: So we came down the Murray until it met the pine. Mm-hmm. It was like a six day trip, but it was in flood. Like it was huge. It was pumping, it was yeah. pumping big. And it was super fun, you know. And they were just like, you guys are fine. You're good kayakers. We'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. Like, really? We're like, yeah, no problem. Yeah. And we love it. Like, Barb had a great trip. Yeah. So we're, we're thinking of doing a trip in Yukon with them, maybe if we can line great. it up for yeah. a couple of weeks. And, mm-hmm. and watching your trips and reading your accounts in the book of your canoe trips, it really, I was like, at yeah, first, I was like, paddling a canoe. I just didn't. It's the best see way to get around in, on rivers. It's amazing. And the
1: Canadian Shield, if you're doing yeah. a combination of rivers you know up, upstream downstream yeah. portaging mm-hmm. across yeah. big lakes yeah. it's kind of the most versatile for sure you know craft for yeah. sure Yeah, yeah.
2: And it's really fun to open up a book and watch youtube videos on how to steer a canoe mm-hmm. and kind of teach yourself some new skills about where to throw that paddle out exactly and to, yeah yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. And i think there's like 22 strokes to maneuver a canoe if you know them yeah. all then it you just kind of just unconsciously use them all once you get to that point yeah yeah, right? yeah. so um, kayaking is a bit more straightforward as far as the amount of strokes available to you, right? Mm-hmm. Because you have the two blades, so.
2: Yeah, and you have um, your, usually you get lazy with the rudder, if you have a rudder, right? Exactly, rudder or skag or whatever, yeah, right? So yeah. Yeah. And a canoe is like the, it's almost like a reverse camber ski, right? Like it has that mm-hmm. incredible, what well, is the canoe that we were using with them, which is a beautiful Kevlar um, Prospector 17. Nice, yeah. And it has an incredible, um rocker on it that's so right. the the ability to turn that thing quickly is unbelievable
1: is, yeah is, wow the prospector <laughs> is the the tripping machine that's it's the most that i use an esquif prospector 17 like a T four x which used to be X okay. canoe but that does everything it's right. it, it tracks well but mm-hmm. it's also got that nimbleness to mm-hmm. kind of maneuver through yeah. rapids and, and and turn and tough as well so that's that's like the tried and true, you know, centuries old workhorse mm-hmm. as far as yeah. that design, right? It's mm-hmm. Coming from like indigenous culture. Yeah, yeah, they totally. more or less were were, uh, we're making prospectors that me then became more standardized with yeah. The manufacturing. So, yeah.
2: yeah. And it was super fun to be able to stand up in a boat and like get, move around a bit more than in a kayak. Yeah. You, you know, can switch so, positions, yeah. one
1: knee down, <laughs> yeah. two legs out, exactly. one leg out, whatever you need. Yeah,
2: it was great, too, because Barb and I, right from the get-go, were never in a double. We were always in two singles. Right. When we started kayaking. Like The divorce boat wasn't going to mm-hmm. be our boat. And, yeah. um i've only used a double since we've had kids and we uh, for a while you guys
1: always rented those two passats from the co-op every year as i recall for your we crits. used to them I, yeah.
2: I, I use their school boats now but yeah. uh yeah no you, you, we didn't you use bought two one passats. from Dave Burcero, didn't you maybe no no, no. Didn't we've always used a use school boat but the mm-hmm. um the uh, except for one year at, at the MEC we rented one but barb was always in a single and i was in a triple right so the middle hatch was where my oh, right. youngest kid the went The g3 g3 Pissat, yeah. and, and my oldest was in the front cockpit then once my oldest got old enough they were kayaking their own single boat and we were a double and two singles,
0: perfect. But yeah.
2: we wanted Barb to be nimble enough to help us if we were in trouble, right? Because mm-hmm. Barb's not going to get in trouble in a single kayak, yeah. so yeah. she's a very proficient kayaker. Mm-hmm. So, so that we thought we thought that was better than two doubles. Yeah. Right? But um, but in the canoe it was great because I'm always talking with my kids, which is wonderful. I love traveling with them. But yeah. but um, both Barb was like we're in the same boat now. <laughs> we were like chatting and having conversations, <laughs> and it was a really lovely way to travel down a river together. Because mm-hmm. usually mm-hmm. the other canoe, unless you kind of group up for a chat about the next rapid or something you're kind of yeah, apart and, you, and we were fairing. following them because they were much more experienced canoers than we were so yeah, they were just like yeah. just follow what we do and and follow our lines so mm-hmm. we we're doing that and you have to
1: work in tandem with each other much more right. than you do doing kayak it's like exactly the front person is as important as the person this stern. Yeah, yeah just for maneuvering if you're you know Farying side slipping or, yeah. or ferrying yeah. Or, yeah. or doing a you know s turn and yeah. an eddy or whatever right so
2: yeah ferrying was yeah. uh was super fascinating just to learn how to do that. Yeah. Using the river to its advantage, right? Angle yeah. and just kind of, I had no idea. And I'm yeah. doing in the back, I'm doing way less work than Barb is. Barb is just like the engine yeah. is. Hauling, I got the angle right? here, Barb. You just <laughs> yeah, keep paddling harder. Harder. Yeah.
1: Harder. yeah. <laughs> draw. Keep going. Draw. <laughs> yeah. So yeah,
2: canoeing is where I could see like spending, you know, I could see doing more. Um, like I, I love being on the water. I've really come yeah. to, I didn't, I didn't come to BC thinking I'd be, I just fall in love with the ocean, but uh, I really have found um, it's incredibly beautiful it's super, uh, it's always changing, it's always different. Yeah. Even when you go back to this, like we've been to Bella Bella, like Barb and I have been on three trips there. We've taken the kids there three times mm-hmm. and we really love the mid-coast paddling. It's just so awesome for so many reasons. And um, even when you go back to a campsite, it's like, we camped here, what were you we thinking? <laughs> like yeah. even, cause the tides completely change. And right. a campsite can, when you get there at the right time, it could be wonderful for 12 hours. You get there at the wrong time, it's horrible. I'm sure you've experienced Yeah, that. Like, like the
1: last two years, we we did the trips in May. Yeah. And it's a high, it's a spring tide. Right, yeah. So yeah. you're rarely ever on the beach upland camping, which I love. I love mm-hmm. being beneath like a big Sitka spruce. Yeah. Under, and you look for the big old growth trees. usually yep. good camping in there, right? Yep. And you can just tuck into the woods mm-hmm. and still use the the beach, you know, yeah. when the tide's low, but you're the not gonna get stuff washed and, out yeah. in the middle of the night when the tide but want comes to put in. You a
2: tent in sand, right? When it yeah. To and rain
1: it it gets so in every yeah. orifice. You don't want that, right? So it's uh, yeah. sand camping isn't great. So, you know, Pebbles and, or Pebbles, just a nice yeah. mossy opening beneath a cedar or a, a sitka is, is ideal.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, for sure. But I love the variability of that because, you know, an alpine bivy site is going to be pretty much the same no matter whether there's snow on it or not. It's, mm-hmm. That's the only difference, really. Yeah. Someone's built a wall and you can just go there and it's good. It's a tight little nook. Yeah, yeah. you know, and winter camping, you kind of make your own camp whenever you want. But, um, but kayaking is really, it changes. And even i heard that kayaking had gotten like it kind of went through like i think mark was telling me this from nbc that it went to like a 50 percent drop in sales right for a while right and maybe yeah. it still is that way i don't know Which, but, but i think
1: it, everything came back strong it came
2: back strong with COVID
1: yeah i think retail wise dave beresford he works in valhalla pure they sold out of everything really and, yeah, okay um i think every boat manufacturer went skyrocketing in the last really well, that's then, great then they just can't get supply because right. of the supply chain issues like like everything right so I really, noticed yeah. the
2: mid coast and went back there for the first time, like since we were there in the early '90s. That a lot of the campsites had become overgrown. Oh yeah, people weren't using them anymore. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, we we were. We were trimming with my garden yeah, shears. last and kinda, year yeah. and
1: this year we were, we were the campsite clearers for both the trips. It was like mm-hmm. when you only know, have the, uh, the false lily valley growing up over yeah. all the campsites mm-hmm. you don't know has been there that year mm-hmm. and then usually overgrown with like some some devil's club on right. say you know the in the hakai or whatever like on mcmullen group yeah. <laughs> they're all this devil's <laughs> club out of there yeah. and uh, and no one it no one had been there for a while i think people i think generally in, in in outdoor recreation people are doing like you said more little day trips right maybe weekend hits yeah. but it's ooh, rare ooh, to ooh. get the uh phone call here we go action yes. happening here but it's rare to get the. Uh, this episode is brought to you by Dream, <laughs> Dream cycle. cycle. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's not. I many people do the. I think they were saying a stat like in the 1970s, the average summer kayak trip was 10 days. Right now, it's two days. Right. People are or supping or you know day yeah, trips. In the it's quick, Bay. Quick yeah, it's quick. Quick hits, an mm-hmm. hour or two
0: we're slaves to our computer back to the instagram right. i don't Come know on. what it is but yeah, it's, it's it weird you week. think there'd be
1: more time with all this technology to give us our free time but it seems to be less so because it maybe takes us we away from work it anywhere all yeah.
0: the time yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. Well, that, that's why i'm thankful for my you know I, I i chose teaching as a as a job i saw my dad doing business 24 7 mm-hmm. and it just and he took time off to take a skiing or whatever else but it was you know he was working yeah and so was my mom and and um and I, at the camp i went to the owners were teachers and a lot of the counselors, they hired were teachers. I was like, this is interesting. Yeah, you know, like, decent wage, and good job security, lots of time off. And yeah. I was like, this is going to work for me. Mm-hmm. So at age of 16, I was like, I'm going to become a teacher. And, you know, and and kind of mapped out my, my future years. And, um, and it's been awesome to have that freedom to take two months off, especially with our kids. Like, to be two parents who are teachers and then have two months off yeah. to You can do all these adventures and kind around.
1: of, you kind of entrench your kids in this kind of, you know appreciation for nature this outdoor lifestyle yep. you're you're taking them out and these are things that whether they appreciate it or not now it's something they will use for the rest of their life mm-hmm. right it's kind of embedded in them like my yeah. parents used to take me out yeah. you know for a couple of weeks a cabin in Georgian Bay right or- yeah eventually we we're just kind of camping right. and then eventually we got a cabin in the same area this little pine cabin mm-hmm. it's just uh you just kind of it kind of gets it becomes part of your being part of your soul right so I'm sure Adam mm-hmm. as well you grew up in, in kind of the, on the Trent Severn more or less and Lots of time outside. Your dad's a big-time canoeist, and you're yeah, kind of entrenched that as well. well so, yeah. yeah.
0: Interesting fun fact is I was born in in my the home that my dad still lives in. So in a, a farmhouse, um, grew up largely in Peterborough. But um, yeah, when I go there, like the waves of nostalgia and comfort and um, a lot of positive feelings and relaxation i mean it's also in the countryside so you can't see the neighbors it's quiet it's in the middle of nowhere there's not much going on but yeah and like going back to your cabin or going back to a, a place that you've been to so much um i think for me as well as there's a gap so i don't go to my father's house that often because it is obviously it's a six hour flight plus two hour drive plus all the other waiting etc cetera, etc cetera. i don't get there that often which is what enhances it even more but um yeah, I mean, just that that familiarity and, and, mm-hmm. and the smells and the sights and just being in the motherland or in that space where you spent you know twenty years of your life.
1: Yeah, it all comes back. To skills you mm-hmm. have subconsciously, nothing else, right? So yeah, it doesn't yeah. take long.
2: Like I know we've taken our kids to uh, this guy, a guy Ram or Ramras, who taught me how to climb. He lives in Colorado, so he's very close to Utah. Mm-hmm. and even I guess my, my first trip there was 86 I, uh, I was in high school or 84 I was in high school and we invited a bunch of camp friends to go we flew out to Denver He rented a van we all drove out to Utah and went canyoneering for like a nice. week and a half and yeah. spring break and I was blown away by Utah mm-hmm. and the canyons and went back quite a few times after that and then um, and I went back various trips with him over the years uh, either a long weekend or fly to Vegas and do some canyoning with him and then we were once visiting uh, Barr's parents, who flew us down for a little, you know, spring break trip to Vegas. I was like, "Wait, we're going to go to Vegas? <laughs> That's really close to to Utah." Yeah. <laughs> so we looked at renting a van for the second week, and we rented a van. Met my friend Ram, and he took us through the canyons because he's been he goes to the canyons three weeks of every month. Except for July and August, when he's climbing the Cascades, so he's and just
1: exploring the whole like. He, he's slot a friend, He's a Fred Becky and, of slot canyons, right? Like he, and,
2: he and he and his group mm. of, of friends. Maybe read an article guy, Tom, about him recently, possibly. He may so have. Impossible. He's been in a couple of. Uh, he's
1: opened up some like new terrain there, and he was guiding some journalists there. He doesn't there. guide. He, may, yeah. he He's not often, guiding them. Kind yeah. of he was there with. with yeah. this kind of... Journalist
2: who wrote about this area. He, it may so, have been him. Yeah, he's yeah. definitely yeah. very well known in that community. He's mm-hmm. kind of like this mythical Ramras creature. So when I went yeah, down there, like, ram-ras. you know, you know Ram because you were seven, you know? and <laughs> like, Yeah, and he's, he's this wonderful Sensei. man. He's who, like
1: the Yoda of the canyon. He really is. Yeah. He,
2: he was a, he's that kind of guy who just has all these little sayings and he's a little wonderful. He's this kind of Pied Piper of kids. Right. He worked at a camp for 22 years, and he just got this whole group of kids interested in being in the outdoors. And he's an amazing trip leader, can you give me like a classic Ramras saying? Uh, <laughs> I had two when I was walking down the hill from my house. and I forgot what they were. It'll oh, come welcome to the land of the living. Mm-hmm. Once you rappel down this heinous canyon into the canyon floor, it's the land of the living when you finish the canyon. You've entered. Another one is um, very, very dangerous. You go first. <laughs> and uh, there's a first aid is not getting hurt. And uh what else would he say? Yeah, <laughs> bunch of other stuff. first like date kit? Uh, yeah, I don't have done. one. It's not he, getting he didn't hurt. carry one for years. <laughs> he was like, just don't get hurt. But he uh so when I brought my kids down there, my kids had heard all these stories about him, right? So yeah. they were super jazzed to meet him. And he and he had just taken a twenty foot fall off a rappel, didn't double oh, back really? his harness. Mm. So he had Broken ribs and broken finger and cracked teeth, and he wasn't doing too well. But he, he still hung with us for a couple of days, set us up with some other people. Yeah. But, uh, he's
1: got a, like a sucking lung and not worry, <laughs> that sort of thing. No worries. I'm Ramras. Yeah. He's
2: still, he's, he has <laughs> bone on bone knees and ankles. And he's Ugh. still out there doing stuff. On the he's, mind. Uh, yeah. Cause the canyons, you can kind of slide down them, right? So mm-hmm. he's really good at moving down a canyon. Going up is a difference. You don't go up canyon, you always go down canyon. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, we were in the canyons and the kids just they, they were they fell in love with Utah. And COVID, the really sucky part of COVID for our family has been two missed spring break trips to Utah. Mm, yeah. So we're hoping to go back this spring break. Yeah, yeah. Um because it became like it became very quickly a family. Like once we went there with the rented van from Vegas, we started driving down after that. Yeah. Just eighteen Skip hours. Vegas, just right for the canyons. Right to the canyon, yeah. right? And spent a week a week and a half and met up with other other families there and just, you know, such a wonderful environment and mm-hmm. it's, the camping is so easy car camping dry conditions and it was just so uh fun to watch ram who i grew up with leading me through these heinous bushwhacks in the adirondacks yeah. in new york uh leading my kids through Kansas was really really cool
1: yeah yeah really yeah. neat
2: uh neat experience
1: the full circle or the continuance anyways <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: But he was taking us down canyons that had only been descended, as far as we know, like twice or three times. Mm. Like he was taking us some very unique. And and
1: what's, what's, what do you, how, if you describe the, what makes uh, the canyon experience so special? Like, mm. what, what is it being down in these places? Is it because no one's really been in them before? It's something eyes haven't seen very often. I mean, I, I think indigenous people used to oh, live yeah, in them, that, too. Oh, yeah, for sure, they were all over the place. There's lots of signs. That, yeah. I know these old these kind of little… Uh, Moki steps and yeah, stuff. Yeah, they're little, were everywhere. Little, they, I, I have uh, no platforms doubt. Platforms and yeah. stuff like that where yeah. they would live, right? So, for sure. But they, now it's probably, everywhere. it's probably almost less used now than it was, say, 200 years ago.
2: Yeah, I think like yeah. most areas, like mm-hmm. even like Kayak on the coast. I mean, the Brogan Group had, you know, between five and 10,000 people living there. 200 Mm. years ago yeah yeah like
1: the the wilderness of of the canoe tripping country like people used to travel up and down the highways there now they're cloistered in communities and they fly Mm -hmm. over where they used to travel through exactly right so yeah yeah. we
2: often think it's wilderness but it was actually people's yeah it's just like backyard it's like the 401 or whatever is like you know
1: the Mackenzie river or something
2: i mean can you imagine imagine english bay like 400 years ago would Mm. have been full of canoes and villages and houses and you know
1: there was a giant probably like 20-foot-wide uh, cedar tree right here where we're sitting yeah, totally, back totally. in the day. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Utah yeah. is
2: special because the colors. Yeah. Uh, the, you're in these narrow slot canyons. Sometimes they're filled with water, so you're wearing a wetsuit. You're swinging through them. It's the most fun I've ever had moving my body through an environment. Mm. Like it's just smiles everywhere and just so fun. You're jumping, you're swimming, you're stemming, you're climbing, you're,
1: and it's, you're I helping guess it's-
2: your friends down, you're repelling, you're, you're, um, you're being lowered, you're, you're wedging your body in a crack in, in this chimney and people are repelling off your body weight. <laughs> and then they're spying you as you slide down this 15-foot Chunk of sandstone, they catch you, and there's all these different techniques. Because this guy Ram and his friends have have um, like climbing, people were putting bolts for re- rappel anchors, and and these guys started developing this system of ghosting a canyon where you wouldn't leave anything behind, including a sling. Like nothing was left behind, no trace, mm. and it was done for two reasons: just because it was you know, cool and no bolts, you don't need to use them. But two, because when you leave a bolt behind or an anchor and you start pulling the rope down like you do in a climbing rappel, the rope is dragging on the sandstone. Now, in granite and shale and stuff, it doesn't really matter. But in the sandstone, when the canyon gets done over and over again, you find all these grooves and these beautiful slabs of sandstone. So as they got busier and busier in the canyons, they started to develop these ghosting techniques where you wouldn't need to pull the rope down. You just would have a mechanism to... Pull it down, but not to drag it up over the rock, right? So they have all these techniques for doing it out of a pool of water, doing it uh, on sand. They would just lay down a tarp, basically, pile sand on it, fold it in half like a burrito, and then you repel off anchor? that. That's your <laughs> anchor. Right? You have people. It's like a boulder. Yes, yeah, like a boulder. boulder and yeah. and, it, and it, it works. Like you think, I'm like, well, I'm going to repel off what? And then you, you have a system though, right? You have everybody else is tied to it as meat anchors with their body weight. The Meat per- anchor. I like that. Meat so, anchor, that's a human, right? The human anchor. A human yeah. anchor. Yeah. You'd be the meat anchor. And yeah. the heaviest person would go first. And you go in order of weight, and the lightest person would go last. And you look at it, you know, you wouldn't be like the meat anchors wouldn't be tight to the anchor. You want to watch it and see how it moves. And because you have usually the rope over 20 feet of sandstone, the friction is pretty heavy. Yeah, yeah. So you're not really adding, you don't repel like, a, you know, jumping repel. You go nice and slowly. Um, and systems like that, and then you just pull a rope from the back end of it, and the whole, all the sand empties out, and the whole thing falls down. Right.
1: It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Right. Yeah. So
2: it's a really neat system just to, Play around with the different anchors and uh, and swim and jump and and just be in this incredibly beautiful environment.
1: And so now you've kind of learned these skills from ramras and you yeah. can carry them on for you know as long as you live, I guess. Basically, yeah. And right? you can go online yeah. and take courses and watch yeah. videos on the same yeah, stuff. Yeah, sure you can find everything on YouTube these days. right? You can so,
2: right, yeah. and and there's lots of debate about which anchor is safe and not safe, and there's mm-hmm. all these systems they use. But um, it's it's super fun. I just I, whenever I go into the canyons I'm just really happy. Yeah. Because it's such a, like, I remember my my youngest kid in the first candy we were in, they turned around and said, Who made this? Because <laughs> they were like eight or eight years old, I think. And they just, It's God's country. Yeah. yeah. I was like, It's water and mostly water and wind. They're like, Cool. And then they kept going down, you know, just for like chimneying and stemming. just was like a playground for them. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Yeah. And it's, it must be perpetually changing and dynamic. Like you said, there's like narrow place you have to squeeze through, you have to wrap down, you have mm-hmm. to stem. Sometimes mm-hmm. there's Big, probably huge echo chambers, and yeah, there's little yeah. narrow slots, and there's or there's like seventy-five going rivers and rivers, stuff like Rivers, there's seventy-five
2: yeah. feet high uh, log jams. No, oh, wow, like above yeah, you or whatever. About like yeah. there's blocking the entire canyon. Hmm. And so um, this one canyon called um, it was called uh, it was called I think now it's called Kaleidoscope. I think at the time it was called something else because anyway, long story. But anyway, when I went down it with Ramras, it was his second time going down it. And his first time, he hit four seventy-five 75-foot log jams that were high. Hmm. And the first time, there was like, you know, two-foot-wide canyon, and it's dark, and you hit this wall of log jams. Because when it flash floods, it's all this water from a huge wash going into a two-foot-wide channel and just, just rises stops. up and yeah. just blocks it. So the first time through, a guy climbed up on the one side, Repelled off the back, and when he got to the other side, they could see a light through from where the others were. Hmm. So they decided to go underneath it, oh. and they bypassed the next three underneath them. Right. So we went in the year later. I was I actually almost didn't go. I was really petrified. Uh, I'd already had my first job by then. I was a little bit nervous about going in this place. Yeah. And um, but we went and uh, we hit the first log jam. We were able to pass underneath it, and we kept passing underneath the other three. And then we were fine, but there were logs falling down here and there. And it's like a four-hour battle of going through yeah, this Yeah, it's canyon.
1: like a, like Jenga, really, right? You yeah, move the wrong log, the whole thing's coming totally. down. Totally, you don't right? want to touch so, anything, yeah, so yeah. you're kind of
2: going through. And there's this one log that would um, that, jam this, any movement going, you got like a 200-foot swim through really cold water. This is March. Yeah. you are wearing a wetsuit, it's freezing cold. Mm-hmm. And you hit this log, and it's in the place where the wall widens beneath you so you can't really start stemming to get over this log it's super hard and you're mm. cold and you're tired and your muscles are tight we eventually got over and rappel off the backside and keep going but two people had died there the year before because oh, really? they couldn't get through the log but when ram went back the year later what do you mean they died how'd they die they couldn't get over the log and couldn't get underneath it so they just and they just got cold and died of, died of exposure and they, exposure they were wearing yeah. a, a shorty wetsuit in april Right. Which wasn't enough. Right. And they didn't go back, and figure it out, and couldn't problem solve. And just And just, just they were found floating. There were two college kids from somewhere in Salt Lake, wow. I think. Mm. And, um, but uh, when Ram went back a few years later, uh, he was walking saying, where is that log? And it was 30 feet above him. He's walking through this like 30-foot wide chamber. He got moved again. because right? the water was <laughs> way lower. So yeah. you can go through that canyon in low water, and it's almost like a walk for parts mm-hmm. of it. Go through high water, you'll float right over the log go through the kind of mid-level that we hit a lot and can really kind of stop in your tracks. So and if the there's canyons, even any
1: kind of push into like a log jam, you can get stuck in there. I mean, you, there's, there's no flow The no water's per- well, nothing there, at all. Eh? Some
2: some people do flowing can. It's a whole mm-hmm. different category. Like yeah. if you do Cypress Falls up near, near yeah, Cypress, that's, that's flowing water. Mm-hmm. That's a different category. These are stagnant pools of water, okay. yeah. and they aren't flowing. If you're, if you're flowing, you don't want to be in there. No, no. Because you'll be uh, dismembered pretty quickly. Yeah,
1: you'll just be part of the log jam yeah. quick You yeah. can be a pop out a few hundred <laughs> miles later right? so exactly. you
2: want to you become one with the wood yeah you know? a lot of the canyons get to know where their headwaters are and know what the weather is doing a hundred miles away right yeah. if it's raining over there yeah. we can't be here because it's going to flash so that's why I like, go with Ram because he kind of knows and he, he'll like cross the bridge in a car and look down and say okay it's low water we can go yeah if it's too high we can't
1: go yeah we were in the maze in the canyon lands oh, okay. yeah. uh, a few years ago like we kind of went down Green River pack rafted mm-hmm. in got in through one of the slots mm-hmm. to get into the maze and just kind of rambled around and we kind of went got up on top of the rim. Her tent was down in a wash in the bottom. Yeah. And we see these thunderclouds coming across and it's like... do camp in a wash. <laughs> mm. It's like, is it, we're only a couple of feet above what that is right. And then, uh, sure enough, it goes and suddenly it's like, instant it's like everything is a river there's Mm -hmm. waterfalls everywhere and we're going shoot and we're kind of hiding under this overhang as the kind of lightning striking and it's just pouring rain and we see everything going down to where our tent is right we said okay well our tent's probably going to be like just spread out through this wash we're going to have to kind of pick up the pieces and uh we got down, we kind of scrambled down as quick as we could back to the tent, and it had gone up. It was probably like three feet. It was brimming just beside the mm-hmm. tent in, in kind of no time from like dead, dry, nothing yep. into instant because it doesn't absorb at all. It just all flows into all these flows canyons, right? So it's so it's ama- it's amazing. That's yeah. my first kind of like look at like a proper like desert flash flood, yeah. right? It doesn't take much. You know, yeah. it's just like does that for half an hour and suddenly everything's full. Yeah. And that drains off an hour later, right? So yeah, it's
2: an amazing environment. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. So I mean, it's, uh, it can
1: be very wet and very dry. The same same hour, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I haven't been in those kind of like those kind of really deep slot canyons mm-hmm. like you're talking about. The maze is kind of more open canyons that yeah. you kind of wander through.
2: Yeah,
1: um, it's not the, that kind of like classic Utah.
2: The slots are further yeah, west. In exactly. Utah. You're from eastern Utah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The slots, kind of in Moab area. You Moab, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just kind of eastern, southeastern mm-hmm. Utah. Mm-hmm. Uh, The Escalante area is more the slots and and Zion has some slots a little bit. But there is like some of the slots that Ram has gone into. I've not done the narrow ones, but there are ones where you can't even turn your head back. Hmm. Like you have to move your body and in ways to make it through, then suck your chest in and, and maybe go up a little bit higher and then come lower and then, you know, be on one foot. And he would do canyons where you had to, the goal was to keep at least one body part on the. Is he a lean guy, Ram? He you fluctuate in weight okay. like he you would yeah. say because you've got to be kind of You can go he, there are some canyons yeah. that uh, I forget the name of this one I haven't done it yet I want to do it really badly especially with the kids because they would just like zip right through yeah. it um, they'd leave you behind yeah. They would, oh yeah for sure <laughs> they, they often do in the canyons uh, they uh, this one if you're over 180 you shouldn't go through it oh really you can go through but you have to go like 30 feet up a stemming chimney move to get over the narrowest spot in? nope no yeah.
0: <laughs> well not to have any judgment of my uh, strength okay. but, but also you're,
1: sympathetic right now you know I don't a like kid, yeah.
0: confined spaces right oh, and, so claustrophobia is not great yeah I don't think that I, w- I wouldn't say that uh, I have like full on phobia i can generally maintain but uh i don't like being in confined spaces i don't want to be buried when i die <laughs> and uh to take a, you to do want to be buried guys, up in the
1: trees like the Haida kind of that style up in a
0: cedar sure, box i just burned yeah. me i was yeah. thinking probably would be would be ideal but mm-hmm. uh, to totally take a complete right turn i was in london and there's a really amazing wine bar called henry's <laughs> wine bar uh, right down <laughs> that um, is a right turn by waterfront station <laughs>
2: duly non sequiturs <laughs>
0: but my point being is the space itself is underground and there's only the ceilings are about five feet it's an archway underground sort of built in you know very old uh, maybe not medieval well no but probably medieval london or, or maybe ladder but uh, archways so you go down and there's a room and they have like a buffet style kind of cheese, mm-hmm. pasta, whatever, and then they serve you know rustic bottles of wine. You go in, it's candlelit only, and we got this table right at the back of the room with Tom James, who Medieval. happened to have been yeah. there. Um, candlelit room. Is the small, Tom James
1: boot fitter crossover? You have story, to, duck yeah. to get in
0: there. <laughs> and he's British, and he happened to be going, and he ended up being on my flight by happen chance. But anyway, you go in, and you have to duck to go in, and we had this table way at the back of the room, and we sat down. And um, I, I told uh, his wife and my partner, I was like, "Man, don't really like it down here. It mm. makes me a bit nervous." And Haley, <laughs> being the nicest woman in the world, she's like, "Well, it's okay." She's like, "You just, okay. just let, let me know if you know if you need anything." <laughs> um, but after a couple glasses of wine, I I didn't really care at all. Um, but anyway, so you could
2: no, probably get through the Utah
0: canyons with a couple glasses well, so of Utah, wine. Utah, I, I yeah. would agree with you. I,
2: I would never want to be in a closed environment, right? Whereas Utah, you can always see, usually see the sky. Like there's yeah. some, you aren't, in a, you aren't like spelunking You're not in going, a cave. You're not in a cave, so it's right? Confined, but it's yeah. still
0: jamming your, the, jamming your body through stone. But you're right. With the confined spaces, it's less about your physical safety and it's more about that feeling of yeah. being confined. You just become so one with the
2: rock in many ways. I know this sounds super cheesy as I say that, but like to wedge yourself into this kind of, Like you can drop down like thirty feet just by friction, friction, just by opening your arms and your thighs, and you would stop. Then you kind of bring them in. You keep sliding, open up, and slow down these parallel-sided, you know, chambers. Like you probably saw in the movie, one hundred twenty-seven hours or one hundred twenty-eight hours. Yeah, yeah. So that guy's a friend of my my friend Ramras. Okay, of course. Yeah, he's actually now a uh, you know the term chalkstone. Yes. Right. So like a so those who don't know, it's like a rock wedged like in a in a chimney or a slaughter crack. And um, it's actually where the nuts for rock climbing come from. They used to put like uh, washers for screws and that's nuts. Right. And like, they used to yeah. put strings through them in the in, in Britain.
1: Yeah, it was literally like a nut with a, yeah. a string through yeah. it, and they wedge and it that's in there. The hexes come from yeah. the different side yeah. So
2: they. Um, uh, you know, as you know the story, he this rock moved. It and slipped on him. Trapped his arm, his arm, arm. Caught, And you yeah. cut it off and survived. So they now call a chalk stone that moves a Ralston because his last name is Ralston. Ralston, right? So yes. he had their permission to. Like, they asked him, Do "You mind if we, you know?" So now it's like that. Watch out, uh, that's a Ralston. Yeah, I mean, like a moving yeah. chalk stone. He made a career out of it. Yeah, mm, yeah, and he's doing well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but uh are uh, willing to lose your
1: story, arm. though, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a dull Swiss army knife, slowly cutting through your own tendons, you know? It's pretty hardcore.
2: Yeah. But well, eventually he broke his arm, right? Eventually he just started breaking his bone. Right, right? yeah, yeah. Right, because if he had cut, actually, I read an article somewhere about a fly fishing There was a Swiss
1: army knife involved, though, there? was. There? He
2: tried. Yeah. It was so, like, yeah. you can't go through bones with Swiss army knife. But he, um, there was a fishing guy who's fly fishing and somehow a rock rolled over his leg and he's trapped underwater. Hmm. And in a minute, he realized the only way he'd survive was to cut the tendons and ligaments on his knee joint. That's quick thing to release his leg. Yeah. And if Aaron had thought of that on his elbow, right, because he was caught in the forearm, mm-hmm. if you cut all the tendons, the, you don't need to break the bone. It's just the tendons, and you could have been gone right away. Yeah, because it's all right?
1: connected. The bone's connected by so tendons. So if you ever get
2: yeah. a, a limb caught, go for the tendons, not the bone. Don't break your own bone cut the
1: tendons that's the lesson there's I'm a like. hot tip in this podcast right
2: there <laughs> i've tried to be a better partner in the outdoors of, of um uh, when we make decisions like to do it as a group to listen to all people to figure out what's going on to get information to um to not leave people out of the equation yeah so people feel heard and listened to and uh and that's really important because i don't want to push people into a situation in the outdoors where they don't want to be there yeah um
0: it'd be really awful right so and it's recreation and that's kind of really what i remind everyone in terms of recreation it's like hey we're out there to have fun and part of having fun is pushing yourself and accomplishment and getting you know the physical endurance and but at the same time you know you are recreating and uh, for skiing in particular, especially if you're skiing on piste, it's like, you're only really out there to, to hang out with your friends, get exercised, and have a good time. And the the one question that I always ask my friends or family or myself when I'm skiing, like, am I having fun? Yes. Okay. This is a successful day. Right. And um, that, that was advice imparted upon me from a former colleague, and I was working for the ski company. We were up on an early season day, and I was like, oh, I'm not feeling it at or this, the snow is not good, or, and I'm like, oh, I'm not skiing to, you know, said, uh, you know, <clears throat> skill level. And he's just like, hey, <laughs> skiing's just about having fun yeah. and hanging out with people. It's, you know, it's not too unlike golf. You know, we come out here <laughs> to ski, but we actually come here to you know, hang out and have fun. Yeah. And I think that, that stuck with me for a long time. It's yeah. like, okay, it's not about always being competitive, and it's fun to go fast, and it's fun to push yeah, yourself, but for yeah, sure. it's recreation. But
2: and it's important to do with, like, I know with Matt Gunn, we had a couple of trips where, We went into it with different kind of plans. You know what I mean? Like we different, we didn't communicate about what the goal for the day was, right? So Matt and I now have gotten really good about, okay, so if we're going skiing Saturday, we're going to these people, what's like, what kind of day is it going to be? Is it going to be where we go out and charge and try to summit all these peaks and do a massive day? Or is it just a fun social day? Mm -hmm. I think it's important to know Beforehand. Before you go yeah. out there, what kind of days are it going to be? Is it going to be a fun social day, just chilling and having fun and skiing powder? Is it going to be like, so on days where I want to go long and hard, I'm going to be a much smaller group of people, like usually two or three as opposed to six or seven. Because you can't go, you know, big with six or seven people. No. It's just really hard. Right? Yeah. And so with Too two or three number. people, yeah. it's like, okay, we're going to leave at 4 a.m., we're going to do this, get back by headlamp at 10 p.m., and, you know, and whatever it may be. Uh, that requires a certain mindset right? Yeah. a certain preparation for it to know what you're getting into, like you would know, and you would know from your trips as well. So um, I think it's just important to – it's just that communication piece. And I think, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm not – but I think I just think, it, to me, like you asked about the question, what am I trying to impart in the kids? It's yeah. just about yeah. being good communicators. If you're mm-hmm. a good communicator, no matter what situation you're in, right, you'll do well, whether it's work, business, fun, play with your partner or whatever, just learning to listen is the key, right? Yeah. That listening leads is the root of justice, right? And so, if we're in the game for trying to make it more, uh, a world that's more just and more humane, if we aren't listening to each other, it's going to be a lot slower and harder to get. I like to. that. Listening is the root of justice. Yeah, it's a quote yeah. I use in my okay. classes. I forget who said it. Yeah. Somebody, good. I should yeah. know who said it. Yeah. But it's a great, so I often have that in a PowerPoint. And it's a really, I think, important lesson for anybody just mm. to, it's a complicated, um,
1: sure there's no cut and dried answer to everything right it's it's, it's there's nuance it's, there's nuances and levels in terms of what there's there's yeah. some
2: there's some cut and dry for sure mm-hmm. but it's definitely um it, it's uh yeah it's just there's always more to learn yeah <laughs> i'm reading yes. a book right now on it. this got a couple of days ago from a colleague of mine and it's phenomenal mm-hmm. and uh I'm, I'm learning a bunch of stuff from that too so i think you can never stop learning like just like when I but avalanches you can't stop learning about avalanches yeah. There's always more learn need to pick up relearn stuff unlearn things that you've also learned that weren't the right things you should have you yeah. know so I think it it takes um, another great quote from a I forget got who said this but it's uh, it takes what is this it takes something to learn something but courage to unlearn something right, right. Like the, the unlearning is often much more difficult, and that's you and, know, yeah, because yeah, uh,
1: you get set in your ways, and it's like yeah. this is the way it's been for thirty years, and it'll always be this way. Right, yeah. 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 I
0: like that, and I'm going to pull that forward because the stereotypes, unlearning the the bad habits and the bad things that we've been taught over the years is probably clutch for for anyone of uh, you know well, of any age, but especially those that that learned those things. In past years, seventies, eighties, nineties, early two thousands, even in the tens, if you will, because uh, things have progressed so rapidly, yeah. and there's so much learning to do. Well, I think it's, it's true
2: for anything, even for if you're making bi- ski bindings, or making like skis, <laughs> or you're making a kayak. Like, you have to unlearn <laughs> yeah, the Raymer. unlearn the ramer. What do we know about bindings? What can we take apart? And you know, I remember talking to Cam when he was designing. The first, G3 tech binding. You know, yeah, would, those are long, they didn't gone. know what he was yeah. doing, but he was like, He said, like, What are the five things you'd like least about this binding, right? And what are the and the he onyx? just tr- the onyx was the first one, which yes. you know is a revolutionary binding in some ways. In if ways, you look into, yeah. the, into the inside, they don't of make that anything binding, like it anymore,
1: though. They're more like a Dinafit now, I guess. Yeah, but yeah. a lot of
2: other bindings use the, the mechanism in the onyx right, is a right. pretty innovative, yeah, the, yeah. the heel piece, especially, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um. Anyway, there's a lot of bindings out there, but uh, but just you know having to unlearn what we use and do and how we, you know, camp or move through water or move through snow is super important. If you aren't, if you don't keep asking those questions, you run the the risk of endangering yourself, endangering others, hurting others, uh, making mistakes, right? And um, so I'm trying to just continuously unlearn as well as learn yeah so if that's that's as important that's the way we want else. to finish the podcast i may be <laughs> <laughs> i don't know but uh it's a uh yeah it's sweet. something that I've come across last few years and it's been really helpful for me to let the kids know that and for myself to kind of go back to that
1: mm-hmm.
2: awesome yeah. well let's let's finish on that note good good uh good tip
1: off though and All thanks right. for joining us steve thanks for having me it was very was, uh, very educational and uh we'll see you
0: out in the slopes
2: okay yeah. take care
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: Special thanks to you Stephen for your your time and your your wisdom and your great stories. Uh shout out and thank you to Dream Cycle for sponsoring the show and allowing us yes. to to uh, record on this this funky beautiful location. And thank you for listening. So is there anything you want to plug or anything or plug social I have, media? I do I do, do anything I'm like not, that. I'm
1: not I, 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 you're I
2: have, under the wire, I suspect I'm not. under the wire.
0: Yeah. Uh He's a teacher. Uh,
2: I don't really. I do participate in social media, but very much under the wire. Okay, we won't say anything with my then. friends. But yeah. I do have a couple of ideas. I just don't know how to monetize them. I'm just too busy and too lazy. Okay, to we'll uh, save those for to the next monetize time monetize anything yeah. or just even to try anything different than what I'm doing right now. So, yeah. uh, but I have a couple of things that there kind of out there but uh, not really just amongst my friends alright look for to Steve Ziff he's going to be huge Yeah,
0: <laughs> leave <laughs> him alone unlikely yeah. <laughs> thanks man thank okay. you thanks so much yeah
1: And cool. Yeah, we were a bit hungover in really big seas crossing from Parksville that over, nice, over right? to Bolinas. Like it was like breaking eight, ten footers coming at, it, at the side. So you had to kind of like time it. When they're breaking, you brace into them or cut away and then.
0: Like going the out side. to the surf all day long,
1: basically. It, it kind of, yeah. Mm-hmm. And just kind of really discombobulated and stuff like that. So it was kind of like you quickly shook off your hangover just to be on. <laughs> 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 this is the kind of thing. So once you're out there, you're out there. But, uh wow.